Amen. Well, good morning. I think it's morning. I went to sleep a couple hours ago. I got back up. We had an event for school last night um, up at the top of Culver Steps. Got home at like one o'clock in the morning. Um, so I'm a little bit tired. But quick shout out to many people that helped with that. Um, whoever it is, there were Ian and man, I can't even remember your names now. Daniel and his other Daniel and Alfred and Stephen and everyone else. Who was else? Oh, Winston, he didn't make it, I guess. Um, he's, still, he's still recovering from last night. I just sabotaged him. It's all right. Um, also, uh, Derek Hoyt uh, as well helped. And so, uh, also, if you want to help afterwards, like my truck's got like 15, 30 tables in it. My van's got some stuff in it. We can like, if you're going to help afterwards, like put it somewhere else in the school. That would be good. So that way we can use our cars for our kids. Um, and so let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump back in the book of John. Our Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that um, you call us to yourself, and that because of you we get to serve, and that we get to have life. Um, pray, Lord, as we look into the book of John today, that you, um, by your Spirit, would teach us, and that you would guide us, and you would guide this time. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been studying the book of John for quite a while now. Um, and we're coming to the very end. This is the last. Um, this is the last chapter of the book of John. We're going to cover today. So we're going to cover chapter twenty-one. Um, we've been looking at the life of Jesus and really the story of Jesus, what he taught, what he lived out, what he accomplished. And last week um, at Easter, Jeff talked about really the culmination of the story: how the God of the universe, really Jesus, went to the cross, went and died a horrible death, but he didn't stay dead. He defeated death. He rose from the grave on the third day, making a way now for humans, for you and me, for us who choose to do life our own way, to choose to do life the way we desire rather than the way God desires, and rather than following God, follow our own ways, really making ourselves God. God rose from the dead and made a way to restore us back into relationship, back into the family of God. And John tells us that really um, in chapter 20, at, at the end of it, he kind of writes this in chapter 20, the reason why he both wrote the book, he says this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That really when we understand and believe that this is not just some nice story, but this is actually the truth, um, it has the ability to redefine us, to give us life, that when we actually see that all the other stories that we, that we try to live under or try to define our lives by are worthless or really have no lasting power, um, when we see that, when we see our, our, our desperate need of a greater story, and we, and we learn to live under and believe in Jesus, we receive life, and we receive life abundant. That life no longer is defined by the opinions of others, or even the opinion of my own self. It's, it's now defined by what God says about me and what he's done for us. And so life now then is where I'm given a new identity. I'm, giving, I'm given life now, both in the now and in the future, where I'm free to do whatever he asks me to do now without worry, without stress, without anxiety, because I know that he's in control and he loves me and he's already made the largest sacrifice possible. He's already done the most amazing thing to secure my life and he's demonstrated his love and he's demonstrated his power and substituted his life 
for my brokenness and his perfection for my brokenness so that now I can receive life. And that's really the good news of Jesus' story. And that's what John has been telling us all through the book as he's been revealing this more and more and more. And so now we get to the final chapter of the book of John and we see this played out in the story of Peter. And Jesus we'll see Jesus restore him and Jesus reminding him that he has a new purpose. And so if you remember kind of where we are in the story, the disciples now are, are a little bit dazed and confused, if you want to say it that way. Um, for the past three years, their whole life has been with Jesus. They've been walking around with him. They've been following him. They've been listening to him teach. They've been seeing him perform miracles. They've been praying with him. They've been eating with him. They, they haven't left his side for three years. And now they're alone. Judas has probably taken, if not all, but most of the money. So they have no money. They're, they're, they, have, they have no Jesus with them at, at this time. They have no homes at this point. They're, they have no jobs. They're probably in fear of the religious leaders who had just put Jesus to death that they may kill them for following him. And so they're kind of in this like phase where they, they know Jesus has risen. They've seen him now. They know he's risen from the dead. But their minds are still trying to figure all of this out. They're still, they're still trying to figure all this out, and they're, they, they really have no clue of what to do next. And so they, they leave Jerusalem, and they go back home. They go to, they go to Galilee, where they're from, and, and Peter says to them in, in verse 3 of chapter 21, he says, I'm going fishing. He says, I'm going fishing. And seven out of the 11 say, that sounds like a good idea, Peter, let's go. Right? And now, as we think about this, this is not just recreational fishing. It's not like, oh, let's go fishing, we'll have a couple of drinks, and we'll talk about old times. This is, this is not what they're doing. This is, this is survival fishing. This is fishing for livelihood, fishing for work, fishing for, for food, for money. Basically, when Peter says this, let's go fishing, he's saying, this Jesus thing is over. We need to go do something else. We need to go to work, we need to, we need to provide for ourselves, we need something else to follow, and they all follow him and they get on the boat. And so they go out in the, in the sea and they fish all night long, and they catch nothing. Now, I don't know about you if you've ever fished before, um, but it's not like they didn't know what they were doing. This was their profession before they started following Jesus. And Jesus comes and he calls them out of that. And we see them, when we see them call them they're, they're to follow him, they're, they're on, the, they're on the, the side of the, the beach and they're mending their nets. And, and nets only need mending when you catch fish. Water doesn't break nets. The weight of fish breaks nets. And so they're out fishing and, and they're, they're, they're pretty close to the shore now, and they're, they're probably on their way back in if they've been fishing all night, and I would guess they're feeling a little bit defeated, um, and they hear someone call out from the shore, hey, did you guys catch anything? I don't know if you've ever fished before, but I've fished a lot um, growing up with my dad, and actually one summer, I fished all summer long. Uh, I took a job down in New Jersey, and I worked on this charter fishing boat where we would take about 30 people out every day and help them catch fish, and I would hook their baits and all that other kind of stuff, and I made lots of money and just wasted it all. Um, but, but inevitably, what would happen every time we would like be coming back in as the boat would come in, we kind of would turn the shore and, and there's some different docks and people would always be on the docks or people would be like on the shore like asking like, what did you catch? What did you catch? And you'd be like, 
you know, like nothing, you'd put your hands out or you'd be like, oh, I got this big one, right? And so like, they have this kind of thing and, and so they're there and they're like, they're kind of like defeated and they're like, no, we didn't catch anything. Well, the guy on the shore goes a little bit further and he starts to give advice. He says, why don't you try the other side of the boat? Which if you know anything about fishing and anything about dragging a net, like it doesn't matter what side of the boat you put the net on. The only difference is either the, the water is carrying the net out and it's easier to pull in or the water is carrying the net like under the boat and it's harder to pull it back in. That's the only difference. It's the same exact water, the same exact place where the fish swim. So if it was me and this guy on the shore is like, hey, why don't you throw it on the other side? And I'm like, I know what I'm doing here. You know, like I fished my entire life. Like I, I know how to like drop it down. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like this, this guy is an idiot is what I'm thinking. But that's not what they do. In verse six, it says this. So they cast it. And now they were, ab- they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So they throw the net on the other side and all of a sudden the net is full. And the disciples who, who Jesus loved, that's John's way of saying himself, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. I think that's funny. Oftentimes like when we like think about jumping into the, like, the, the water, like we take off clothes, Peter's like, I'm putting on some clothes and he jumps in. Anyway, I don't know why he does that, but... Um, <laughs> I'm sure someone will tell you that he you know, had to get dressed to see Jesus. I don't know. Anyway, verse 8. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. And when they got to, out to the land, they saw a charcoal fire in its place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Just for a second here, John is telling us this is another miracle that Jesus is doing here. This is another evidence of God, of Jesus being God. He's not saying, he's not just saying like the fish is not just an evidence of Jesus' power and provision, but the net not breaking is also evidence of Jesus giving us everything we need to do what he asked us to do. And so, so John is giving us two kind of miracles here. He's showing us, he's revealing who Jesus is to us. Again, in verse 12, he says this, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I don't want to stay here long, but I do want to address this just a note because we saw this a little bit last week and we see it now. Um, we've seen a few times here at the end of John that people didn't really recognize who Jesus was after he was raised from the dead. We saw this with Mary in chapter 20. She thinks he's a gardener until he speaks. Other people didn't really recognize him until, um, until he reveals who he is. And, and to be honest, we're not completely sure why this is exactly that way. It may be, there may be a few things. It may be where after you've seen someone like horrifically die and then you see them alive, like there's no category for that in your, in your brain. You're like, you're not, you're not ready to experience, like, to see them. So maybe it's that. Maybe, maybe until, like, you hear their voice, it doesn't really completely register in your brain. Maybe the disciples didn't, didn't hear the voice. The voice that Jesus was calling without the face didn't, didn't line up. Maybe Jesus' face looks different now. 
We know that Jesus still has the scars on his hands and in his side. And we know that he was whipped and that he was beaten and he was punched in the face. That thorns were pressed into his head. That he was beyond recognition on the cross. So he could have scars that, that make his face look different. It's amazing to think about that. That the God of the universe would do those things and keep those for the rest of eternity as reminders for us to see him of all eternity of his grace and of his great sacrifice for us. That he would carry those things so that we don't have to anymore. We also know that, that he's, he's been glorified, right? He's been, he's been to heaven and he's been back and he's been glorified. So he has a glorified body now. So maybe that looks a little bit different. But verse 12 says here, they knew it was him. They knew it was him, that it wasn't a ghost, it wasn't some dream, it wasn't somebody pretending to be him. They knew that it was Jesus, the risen Savior in human flesh, walking around, talking to them, eating with them again. And this is really important, that they knew that it was him, because John is reminding us, and he's proving to us, that he's risen from the dead. That now there is actually hope and trust in him for life. That he's, that he's really the ultimate provider, the ultimate risen savior. And so now they're sitting on the shore, sitting around eating this fire, eating around the fire, eating breakfast with Jesus. And Jesus has this conversation with Peter. And he, if you remember, Peter, Peter has kind of had a rough couple of weeks or so. Peter's gone from, from stating, Jesus, you are God. And I'm going to follow you to the end, to cutting some guy's ear off, trying to defend Jesus, to then right out of that denying Jesus three times, to sheepishly denying Jesus to, to even to, to a servant girl um, as he watches be put on trial and killed. And now this isn't the first time that, that Peter has seen him. We said he's already seen him three times, right? We saw Peter run to the, to the empty tomb. We know that Peter was with the disciples later that night when Jesus appeared to them in the upper room um, where they were meeting there. And so Peter is so excited to see Jesus again, just like when he was the first one to run out to go to the tomb. He's the first one off the boat. And he jumps in the water and he swims to the shore. And what we have next is really a conversation um, that John highlights for us. And we know this isn't the, the first or the only conversation that, that Peter has had with Jesus. Um, there have been many others, I'm sure, along this way. Um, and, but, but John highlights one for us here. And many have taught on this, this, this piece before, and, and you can highlight kind of the Greek words of Jesus uses for love here. Um, you can go online and hear like 500,000 sermons on those three words if you really want to, um, of how Jesus restores Peter and calls him to lead to church. But I want to look at something else as we think about this. I want to look at the conversation following that. So I'm going to read the first conversation, but we're going to talk about the second one out of it. Um, and so... Um, because I think it's, it, it makes sense and ties into the themes of what we've been looking at as a whole story of Jesus, who is actually the one who is the provider, who actually is the bread of life and actually feeds us and actually gives us purpose now in life. So verse 15, um, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he said this to show by what death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Just a quick note here. When John wrote this book, when John wrote the, the Gospel of John, Peter had probably already been killed. Peter had probably already been killed by a Roman emperor, Nero. And so if we, I think when we, we see these recorded words of Jesus, Peter is coming death. He's able to kind of look back at it and interpret what Jesus was saying. So you interpret the symbolism that Jesus had used. History tells us that, that Peter was, was, was most likely crucified upside down in Rome during one of Nero's persecutions in the mid-60s. And so Jesus here is predicting the martyrdom of Peter. And he's telling Peter that he's going to die in his service. And Jesus knew what sort of death it would be. And Jesus knew the time frame of when it would happen. And he's telling Peter this. And as, as you think about it, that that much knowledge could discourage Peter. If someone comes and says, you're going to die and you're going to die this way, it could be discouraging. Or it could serve as a reminder to him that Jesus is really never surprised. That Jesus is in complete control regardless of what is going on around us. See, the good news as well is that, that Jesus spoke these words to Peter after he rose from the dead himself. He had just proved that death had no power over him. And so therefore, when Jesus, when Peter dies, Jesus will be alive and ruling when Peter comes to die. Romans 8.11 tells us this. It says, if the spirit of him um, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who has raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And so Peter now has nothing to fear in death. And can I say, if you're part of Jesus' family... Neither do you. Neither do you. John also said here that, that Peter's death was to glorify God. He said, verse 19, he said this, he said, by signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. This is John's way of, of basically say, seeming to say that he considers all of our deaths an appointment to glorify God. That God is ultimately bringing good out of bad, glory out of death. And apparently, um, Peter understood this, and Peter got the message. Peter understood that he was going to die. He was going to die in Jesus' service. And this is why he asked this question in verse 20. He's like, if that's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to John? Verse 20, Peter turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? This is John's way again of describing himself. We've seen this over and over again in the book. He doesn't just say me. He just describes a bunch of stuff about himself. Verse 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he will remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that to him, he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? So I think if we're honest, if we look at Peter's kind of conversation here, I know in my own life, I think we're often like that. Hey, that doesn't sound fair. How come this is happening to me? 
Does everyone else get the same thing? He has this, Peter has this desire to know and in many ways really be in control of what God is doing in his life and in the life of others. That's where Peter's at. As you think about that, what, what are some ways that, that we desire to know or really desire to be in control in our lives? How does that play out in your life? If you're new with us, when I ask a question, you can answer. And so as you think about that, what, what are ways that maybe or areas in your life where, where you desire to know um, and really, really desire to, to be in control? How does that play out in your life? As much as I try to be with Jesus and understanding, I get like yeah. a little controlling. You want to be in control of the other drivers around you. They should drive like this. Yeah, how come they don't get a ticket? I just got a red light one. What's going on with that? Yeah, how are else? What are Yeah, whether it's a good story or a bad story, we may want some of those things. We want to like, maybe sometimes we, we want to have some of those things in our life where like God would reveal himself to us that way. Yeah, good. How else? What are areas that you try to be in control in your life? Yeah. If I knew your will, God, then I would do better now. Yeah. Yeah. And all the time he's just saying, just follow me. Just follow me. Yeah. Where else? Well, parenting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know it's you know, what you need them to accomplish. <laughs> Brianna's giving you the huff over there. <laughs> yeah. She didn't like seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, there's a piece of that, right? Where, like, we're trying to control whether that's, um, whether that's, that's our kids or, or, or any other relationship that we're in. We want to, like, control someone else in that, like, or want them to be here. We want them to look like this. Yeah, good. Yeah. How else? Yeah, pretty pretty much everything we could probably put in this category, right? Our circumstances, the time, our economy, our paycheck, our job, our families, the impressions that other people have of us, the things that we want in life, everything. When we when we're really when we're saying this about God, when what are our hearts run to? What are we really saying about about God when our hearts are running there. Yeah, I can trust my thoughts more than your thoughts, God. Mm-hmm. I got this. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah, step aside. I got this. Yeah. Yeah, he, may, he loves them more than he loves me. Mm, yeah. God, you're not quite being gracious enough to me. Yeah. You need my help. 
Yeah. Yeah. What does that produce in you when we live that way? Anxiety. Yeah. Worriness. Worry. Worrying. Worriness. Yeah. My brain is tired. I'm sorry. What else? What? Resentment towards others and God. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're, that can look like controlling or manipulating them so that they do or get what we think they should get. Or Yeah, good. What else? Lack of joy. Yeah. Pride. Mm-hmm. Loving conditioning. Yeah, we, we only love when it happens like this. Yeah, or we only follow God when he does this for us. Yeah, good. Yeah, definitely. Confusion, separation, and lack of relationship, you know, in, in some sense. Yeah. Or at least perceived. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Sounds a lot like Adam and Eve. Sounds a lot like hell, doesn't it? Yeah. We got this, guy. We can figure it out. And Jesus says to Peter, what does it matter to you? He's saying... Who is in control here? He says, whose glory are you after? I'm the one who's working out all things so that I will receive the glory that I'm due. Jesus is saying, nothing escapes my notice. Nothing happens that I don't know about. I am the great I am. Life is about me, not about you. Now that kind of sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? It sounds, it can see, it could maybe think of, it sounds a little bit harsh. Harsh, but only if we remove God's graciousness from his sovereign control. When you remove those two, it can sound harsh, but the good news is that they are inseparably linked. The good news is that in the midst of God being in completely control and orchestrating out all things for his glory, he's also doing that in light of being gracious to you and to me. And he's just proven that on the cross by not sparing his own life so that we might now have access and relationship with the God of the universe. I think it's easy to believe that and, and to, to really say, yeah, I, I truly believe that when we look around and things are going the way that we think that they should. But when things don't look the way that we think they should, we quickly become Peter and we say, hey, what about X? What about them? What about this? You see, we always live this with this illusion that we're actually in control. And then when God, with his grace, pulls the curtain back and shows us the reality of the situation that we have no control, we're either going to freak out or we're going to worship him for who he truly is. The truth is, in order for us to live this way, in order for us to have this mindset to understand that, that whatever is going on in our lives is an opportunity um, for God to bring glory to himself, we must love the glory of God more than we love our own glory. We must love the glory of God more than we love our own glory. And the reality is that God's glory has to be the number one priority. Now this is not the first time that Jesus has taught this. We see him teach this many other times. Just a couple spots in John 7. Um, we see Jesus teaching at the temple and he's, talk about, he's talking about doing God's will and seeking his glory. And he says this in John 7 verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there will be no falsehood. So the mark of a person who is true and is not false is their devotion to the glory of God. So when he says in verse 17, you must will God's will in order to know my truth, he means you must join me in willing and putting the Father's glory above your own glory. John 5.44 says the same thing. How can you believe since you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? The answer is you can't. You can't believe God and then seek some other glory. You can only worship one thing at a time. You can only worship one thing at a time. And either we're going to worship our own glory or we're, and our own desire to be in control, or you're going to worship God and actually believe that he's actually in control in the midst of whatever circumstances going on in your life. And I think if we're honest, we often go back and forth and back and forth. And the good news is that when we actually treasure the glory of God above our own, it's actually freeing. Jesus' words to Peter here says, what does it matter to you? Just follow me are liberating. They free us from the bondage of comparing. Comparing always leads to bondage, to having to have your life line up or to be like someone else, good or bad. And I want to say like one of the, the natural traits of humans is we are prone to compare. I think this plays out in so many areas of life. We could probably list so many areas of life where, where, where we compare, whether that's our marriages or our jobs or our, or our looks or our housing or, or our missional community. Even church, oftentimes, we compare. I, I think many of the Christian books and many of the Christian conferences that are out there are quietly delivering the message, you're not making it as a church. Your worship could look better. Your preaching could look better. Your evangelism could look better. Your pastoral care could be better. Your mission could be better. And, and here is what works. Buy this, read this, go there, do this, and then you can be like that church over there. It's so pervasive in all areas of life. And Peter had just heard a very hard word. You're going to die, and it's going to be painful. And his first thought was comparison. What about John? If I have to suffer, will he have to suffer? If my ministry ministry ends that way, will his ministry end that way? If if I don't get to live a, a long, fruitful life in ministry, will he get to? And I say we do the same things all the time. It's the way sinners are wired. Compare, compare, compare. We crave to, to know how we stack up in comparison with someone else. There's, there's some kind of high, I know it is in my own life, that if we can just find someone that's a little bit less effective than we are, then, like, then I feel better. There's, there's some standard for me to judge my life by. But the good news of Jesus is that he has already done the work for you and me. And then he has work for you and me that he calls us into, and that may look different. What he calls me into may be different than what he calls Andrew into. And it's not that he's given anyone else any need to worry about that. There's grace to just follow him in the midst of it. This doesn't mean that I don't care about anybody else. 
but the work that he calls me into. Maybe that I'm leading other people and discipling other people to seek God's glory as I'm, as I'm learning to do that in my own life. But what, God is, what, their, what their life is and what they're doing is not dependent on my joy now. I don't need to compare my life to anyone else. And John ends the book with this final statement in verse 24. He says this, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there also are many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them written, I suppose the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. You see, the good news is that regardless of who you compare your life with, they don't add up to Jesus. If you think about this in your own life, I thought about this the other day, like, if you wrote, like, every story down in my life and, like, I actually embellished them a little bit, like, I could probably fill up five books. Maybe. Maybe, maybe three. I don't know. If you think about your own life, if you told every story, I'm older than you guys, so you guys have a little bit less, not all of you, but the majority of you, um, you know, how, how many books would it take for you to, like, fill up your life? Two? Four? I don't know. Maybe some famous people, like 10, 15? I got to looking around and thinking about this probably too much. Um, and, and there's a tower of books, if you could throw that picture up, um, that were written about Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater. All right? This tower is approximately 6,800 books. It's three stories tall, and the tower represents about half of the books that were written um, with titles about Abraham Lincoln. So maybe so two small towers compared to Jesus' books that fill up the entire world. The world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. It's a really good reminder that God is the one at work. That God's glory is really the one that we should be seeking. The good news is that, that Jesus has already been glorified. And that when we place our trust in Him, His work gets graciously substituted for ours. All of Jesus' books now, all of His work gets substituted for ours, for our measly three to four or five books. And now, when He calls us to, just like He did with Peter, He says, follow me. See, Jesus is the one who catches the fish. Jesus is the one that made the nets not break. And he just asked them to obey him. To place the net on the other side of the boat. And he says the same thing to you and me. Do what maybe doesn't even make sense at times. And just follow me. That he is the one who's actually the producer. And we're just participants in all the same thing to bring him glory that we get to trust him and that we get to seek him in his glory and believe that jesus christ is the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name that's the purpose of the book of john that's the purpose of all of life that we would see that that we would understand that that we would now have life because of it And that everything that happens now will be defined by those things and defined by His glory, not the glory that we're trying to produce in our own. 
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to head to communion and be reminded of what he's done for us. Our Father, we thank you that you are about your glory. We thank you that uh, this is your story and not ours. Our Father, we thank you that we get to participate in bringing you glory. What an amazing honor that is. What, what graciousness that we, uh, we get to bring glory to the, the maker, the, the, the glory, the one of the universe, the whole universe is all about. Father, I pray that you would remind our hearts of that. Pray that you would keep us, um, our hearts, from, from wanting to compare, that we, would, that we would see and live for you and follow you in the everyday. And we wouldn't worry about what the future holds, but we would know that you are ultimately in control of all those things. Father, we thank you that we get to worship as a family together. Pray that you would continue uh, to teach us by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.